0: Hey everybody, it is episode 48 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Austin, Texas here at Rogue with Steve. Hey Steve. Hello, universe. Coming at you again with episode 48. Today we've got a very, very special interview. Alex Hutchinson, who previously wrote the Sweat Science blog and the Fast Lane with Runner's World. He's now with Outside Magazine, has a book coming out. He's going to be on to... Basically talk about his final article with Runner's World, which we've talked about previously on the podcast. But the seven pillars of running wisdom that he took away from his years, at least years so far, blogging on Sweat Science. Lots of interesting things there. Also, lots of confirming things. (laughs) Steve (laughs) and I, we're happy to see some of those pillars jive with what we've been talking about from a training standpoint. So we'll have Alex on in a bit. Before we get there, of course, we've got some current events to run through the first of which we just have to mention, you know, as you're listening to this this week, the New York Marathon would have already happened. Hopefully you listened to our preview show. Steve and I have to humbly bow and say we, we had a huge miss, at least in our preview, missing that Wilson Kipsang had actually joined that field. But he hadn't he hadn't he hadn't actually declared at that point, I don't think. I think there was some rumor out there that he was going to do it, but we missed it anyway. He's in the field. It was confirmed the week of the race after we'd released that preview episode. And so by the time you're listening to this, you'll know how he did. And Steve and I will record a recap episode for New York for you that will come out later this week. But that was a miss uh, on our part and our bad. But we would both probably put Kip saying as the favorite.
1: And it's certainly likely to turn that race to even more intrigue than was already going on with it. The New York City Marathon got better and better and better, and I'm um, it'll be you all will have already watched it, but I'm hoping it's the epic battle that it sounds like it can be. So yeah,
0: and it's intriguing because Skip saying obviously is the most now now or was the most talented in the field, but the conditions look to be similar to how Berlin was. He so might get cold, <laughs> so will his legs get cold? Will he T N F again? <laughs> and we will see. Sometimes it's hard to come back from a potential peak and reload for another one. So that'll be an interesting story to follow. You guys will have seen it. We'll talk about it on our recap episode later this week.
1: He did make a ton more money doing that, though, too, Chris, because he gets to he gets another appearance fee and he's got another shot at a bigger payday because the payday is bigger at New York for the third for the sec for the first place and all the way through to third place. So um, he's 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 definitely making a lot of money, which which sort of makes you ask questions. But anyway, there might
0: might be a whole episode on the financial psychology of elite (laughs) marathon racing yes but that is another episode so uh, a couple of other things a current event and an article first of all we've got to give a shout out we've talked (laughs) just a touch of cross country so far this year we are into the conference championships that happened this past weekend the university of texas our squad so to speak here in austin both the men and women had a solid conference meet great meet the men finished second by a, a mere point almost edged out iowa state for the win on the men's side which would have been a massive upset and then on the women's side they did solid as well finishing third overall to be on the team podium there sam worley true freshman had an outstanding result to get third and lead the ut men we had mentioned him early on for his result at the brooks pr invite Mm -hmm. as a high schooler earlier this year and so steve as former coach of (laughs) university of texas women's cross country at least what's your reaction to the big 12 result and i am anybody
1: that knows me i ran at ut so i bleed burnt orange no matter what and i'm so excited it's such a i didn't get a chance to go out there i was hoping to be able to get out at the meet but i was coach of the day that day and i couldn't get out there but man, hats off to the men at Texas and the women. They ran above what people expected them to do. I think only team that actually thought that Texas had a chance at winning the title was Texas themselves. But hats off to to Herbster for getting those guys ready. And Sam Worley, what a what a preternatural talent, man. This thing came down to so Oklahoma State's lead runner went off the front and got away. But basically, these Sam Worley and the and the second place runner from Oklahoma State. By the way, Oklahoma State was guarant, had made basically a guarantee. Their assistant coach Bobby Lockhart had basically made a guarantee that they were going to win, and they got third. So not only did they get beat, but they got they got they didn't beat soundly. They only got beat by four points, but they still got beat. And uh, Sam Worley just barely didn't get second place. He got third from a lean. They actually he and the second place runner from Iowa from Oklahoma State got the same time. So. Um, an amazing day. Saturday was beautiful weather here, so I would have loved to have been out there cheering my Longhorns on, but hats off to them for getting done what they did. Also, hats off to the women who had a really tough race at the pre-nationals and did not run very well there, and it was beginning to look like maybe curtains for them in terms of looking at getting a national qualifier standard, but um, super proud of the Longhorns, exceedingly happy to see that they're running cross-country back at the level where they need to be and excited to see what, what the rest of the year plays out for them.
0: We've got regionals and then the big NCAA. The big dance. So the big dance. We'll be following some of that cross country as it heats up, at least figuratively, as the season progresses there on NCAA's. Also, by way of intro, we've got a. I've got a. I've got to do a little rant here, Steve. Woo! I love it when Chris rants. We might get a couple of curse words in here. He might spit in his microphone. I don't know. We'll I mean, see. It's going to be awesome. I almost feel bad about this because it's just coincidental that we're doing this rant when we're interviewing a former Warner Runner's World journalist. But I wouldn't feel bad, <laughs> as you'll hear me say later. Yeah. But we've got to talk about a Runner's World article. I am a Runner's World subscriber. I do tend to read it every month because, you know, I like the feel of a magazine, you know, when you get it, it can kind of be an escape from whatever. You could just dive into a magazine. And even though Runner's World is maligned by some as being a little bit watered down these days, I still find joy in it and find that at least there's one or two articles in there that, that I might find either interesting at least or have an interesting story on a runner or... You never know. Maybe even a training tip. I think when Alex was writing the fast Lane column, that was always one that I checked out. And I'm sure they'll be keeping that tradition with another... Another writer. So anyway, so I'm not one to bash Runner's World. I do sometimes get frustrated at what they do in terms of watering things down. I also get frustrated by their shoe reviews as someone who's a shoe geek because they tend to be driven more by who's spending sponsorship dollars in their magazine or ad dollars in their magazine than by actual real experiences in running shoes. But I'm not going to bash Runner's World and I'm still a fan of sorts, lowercase f and a subscriber but i've got a rant on an article in their latest edition that just came out and it's the one with kevin hart on the cover it's the november issue 2017 and there's an article in here that's titled the ultimate guide to not running (laughs) (laughs) in in runners world (laughs) what a title there's an article called "The Ultimate Guide to Not Running."
1: This is like the this is like the epitome of the anti-running thing. This is like <laughs> taking anti-running. By the way, how is that for cooking? In in in, in um <laughs> you know one of the great cooking magazines of the world that we're gonna say here but don't eat,
0: <laughs> cook but don't eat. The ultimate guide to not eating. Exactly. The ultimate guide to not running is the title of this article, which the premise i get they're trying to be provocative with the article and the or the title and the premise of it is that hey look you need rest too you know running all the time isn't necessarily uh, the the thing to do without the proper recovery and you know that premise in generalities is okay because yes it's about stress but it's also about rest and making sure you have the right balance but there's some stuff in here that's just downright fucking irresponsible <laughs> it is <laughs> All right. for, for runners world you know, or for many journalists and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote one little segment because I think it kind of s- covers the whole th- the irresponsibility of the whole article it says running is great for your bones the impact stresses the tissue and just like a muscle that increases cell turnover and forces the bone to remodel with stronger structures says Vincent but if you run today tomorrow and the next day it never has time to fully repair That's a quote that they were pulling from a scientist they were quoting in the article. But then their next sentence is where it gets irresponsible. Eventually, you could be looking at a stress fracture and a season on the sidelines (laughs) from running today, tomorrow, and the next day. From running three days in a row, suddenly they're jumping to you having a stress fracture. Let's extrapolate to eventually that's where they go next right so right. one day one day two day three stress fracture stress fracture <laughs> crazy and so that's just irresponsible because it takes someone who doesn't understand training principles and it puts through fear tactics absolutely in them this idea that well, well I, you know i i don't want to run too much and we'll talk about this with alex as he has a very specific point on the idea of running more but but you know to me, this is completely irresponsible because the article focuses on this idea that, in order to get the benefits of not running, you need to do nothing. so the idea of rest, according to this article, is doing nothing and that 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 scientist, whoever he is, did not say that no, he didn't. did not say that
1: he, he did he did not, and so I imagine he's probably a little frustrated too by the fact that that would be that 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 they quote that they jump to the eventually, which could be, is that eventually from 75 days in a row, or is that eventually just from the third day?
0: Anyway, that's... Well, and if it's three 20-minute runs, is that... I mean, so, you know, it ignores completely this idea of intensity, but but then they go on to suggest some things to do when you're not running (laughs) on the next page. (laughs) And... Number four out of the six one things things <laughs> number four out of the six things they recommend to do while you're not running is play video games. <laughs> 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 like, OK, Wait. so I'm reading an article from Brunners World that's talking about not running and not just ta- not talking about not running, but talking about playing video games instead of running. and the quote from that section is... Um, <laughs> says, studies have found that video games can help control anxiety before performance. And one even discovered that those who leveled up their term for playing video games needed less recovery time after a stressful event. Researchers aren't entirely sure why, but they theorize that video games are a way to escape an alternate reality. Just smoke some weed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's irresponsible. Because here's the thing. Here's the message that people need to understand. Yes, rest is important. Rest does not mean not doing anything. It might mean taking a day off from running. But guess what? It also means doing other things that help prepare your body for that next workout run or long run. Rest is not doing nothing. In fact, it's very rarely doing nothing. <laughs> I preach this here. I preach this to my athletes. Movement equals blood flow equals healing. Yep. You've got to move to heal. And so, you know what? If you're watching football on a Saturday after a long run... Fine, if your feet are kicked up. But you know what would make that better? If you're actually foam rolling at the same time. Exactly right. Yeah, you're not running, but you're doing something else that's helping promote recovery. Or perhaps you take a day off, but instead of running that day, you do some cross training to strengthen your core. So when you go back to running, you're in a better place. So there's lots of things besides playing video games that incorporate (laughs) rest. And runner's world is really only kind of making people feel better that are lazy and sitting on their asses instead of running and that to me is extremely frustrating not to mention the fact that it's irresponsible to those that are actually trying to get better
1: well chris i stopped reading runner's world in the 80s and uh the runner's world in the 80s would have told you to take a day off and drink a beer instead of play a video game and that and that probably <laughs> would be way better that's better than way, a video way game. better than that but you know i think that I'm not going to go on too long a diatribe about the – I don't have a subscription to Runner's World. I have no interest in that magazine. I watched it in the 90s and the early aughts devolve into a complete and utter shit show that has almost nothing of value. In fact, it was Alex who brought me to even consider getting back to that when I saw that his sports science blog that he was talking in Runner's World. That sort of gave me some hope that maybe there would be an opportunity to get real educated, real running from real – interested parties and um you know i just it it saddens me that alex isn't there but he's going to a place that will actually value him at at uh at 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 outside not saying that that he has anything to do with any of this rant that i'm making right now or chris's he has nothing to do that i'm sure that that article probably made him want to vomit as well but you know it i think the key thing here chris is that it's really hard for us as runners to even find good intelligent information in a print form and it saddens me that we don't have a place to go anymore the, the runner went away um running times, Run times went away yep. and you know we've got to go online there's still great great reading you can do online but I, as you said sometimes when you're taking your morning dump you just want to have a magazine in your hand and the only thing i'd
0: use that rag for is to wipe myself <laughs> well here's here's the other thing that's frustrating to me is the other day like literally the day after this article came out, and I saw it as I was flipping through the magazine, and and promptly went on a Twitter rant for those that follow <laughs> me on Twitter at Chris McClung. But the next day, I was listening to a a sports talk radio, local sports talk radio show that I listen to when I'm driving here and you know from here and there. I don't drive much, but when I do, usually <laughs> it's on. But I happened to catch in that moment of driving, the two guys who were talking about UT football one of them mentioned he went for a run and it had been his first run in a long time and how much it almost killed him. And the other guy answered by saying, you know, running is one of the worst things you can do for you. Oh God. Okay. So me being, you know, a little bit jacked up from this (laughs) article, (laughs) they have a text line. (laughs) So I promptly texted in my response to that comment and promptly got into a text argument with the guy who'd made that statement about running. (laughs) And it's, And it's, you know, ability to harm you or not, and you know, it's to me, it's like this kind of stuff gives him fuel gives for the fire. F- yes, yeah, it gives that him does. fuel for the fire. Well, you'll just end up with a stress fracture if you run three days in a row. Your <coughs> knees will hurt. You're, yeah, and so it's it's just dangerous because it lets people who don't want to move sort of feel good about that fact. And it scares people who are actually trying to get better into doing something that may not be as productive for them as something else. You know, taking an entire day off and doing absolutely nothing generally is not better for you than doing something on that day, even if you're not running, to recover, to rest, to rejuvenate your body, to strengthen it, to prepare it for your next bit of work. So it's just irresponsible. And I want those that are listening, one, to be able to differentiate when they see that kind of information and know that it's just flat out wrong and two, also be able to preach to their maybe casual or non-running friends you know, who see that kind of fodder that there's a better way to think about it. I agree. So that's a pretty good segue, or at least beginning of a segue. Well, well hopefully
1: Alex won't (laughs) hold it against us. (laughs) Alex, we we didn't set it up this way to line right into you, but it just turned out that way. We apologize for that. So
0: now we'll segue into our interview with Alex Hutchinson, who— it's really gracious to be spending time with us. As we mentioned, he is the, the former writer of, run, of Sweat Science for Runner's World, as well as the Fast Lane article. And now writes for Outside Magazine, the same blog, Sweat Science. It actually started about 10 years ago as an independent blog. He had his own website that he was publishing information on sort of the science of running and the science of sport. Alex Alex's background is really interesting. He's clearly way smarter than both you or I, Steve, so it's good to actually have an expert to come onto the show. But he actually has a PhD in physics from the University of Cambridge. So super, super smart guy. Went from there to work at actually the NSA, you know, the National Security Agency for the U.S., working on nanocomputing and some crazy physics stuff there (laughs) that would probably blow right over our minds. But then has found this niche in... In running and sports journalism talking about the science of sport and the science of running and helping us sort through some of the scientific studies out there what they're telling us and maybe what they're not telling us or how they might be misleading and so he has a long history of doing that in runner's world and I encourage you to go check out and I'll link to it both his runner's world blog page which still has all of his old blogs from runner's world sweat science and then also his new outside magazine Sweat Science blog page where he has some new articles coming not just on running but outside is giving him also the ability to talk about the science of other sports, which is super interesting. And, and so we're going to be talking with Alex about his final article for Runner's World. He wrote an article that we mentioned and linked to in one of our previous openers on his seven pillars of running wisdom from his time on running science with Runner's World we're going to be talking and walking through each of those seven pillars, getting a little bit more depth from him on that and some color on some of the specific subpoints. And then also at the end, we'll talk about his book coming out called Endure. And that one's coming out in February. It's going to have some discussion on the mind-body connection, which is super fascinating for us because of, of our interest in that with the podcast. So with that preamble to Alex, we'll bring him on. All right, we've got Alex joining us now. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Before we dive into talking about your seven pillars from your last Runner's World article, Seven Pillars of Running Wisdom, I wanted to get a little background on your running journey. How did it start for you, and how has it evolved to where you are today?
2: Yeah, well, there have been a lot of evolutions, actually. I I started out in elementary school running cross country, and I ran track and cross country in high school and university. And I was a middle distance guy running 1,500 meters. For the most part, I ended up running 342 in university, which, depending on who you ask, is either equivalent to about a 359.9 mile or a four flat point one. And and you you can guess my opinion on that. Um, After that, I I started to move up a little distance in distance a little after university, ran some 5000s, and and had a chance to train with some interesting people like Matt Center with Seniors Group for a few years. And then uh, in my late twenties, I I moved away from the track after some injury problems, and I ran some road races and did some trail races, some mountain races. I did I I uh, ran the World Mountain Running Championships a couple times, and actually like my, my next race uh, in a couple weeks is going to be an orienteering race, which is uh, should take somewhere between three and eight hours depending on how many wrong turns we take. So. Um, pretty much every surface, every distance I've, I've done, not every distance, but many distances I've, I've experimented with. And I still run, um, I run every day pretty much. Um, but I have a one-year-old and three-year-old at home right now. So my, my current sort of ambitions are, are, uh, always we constrained by working around, uh, you know, when I need to be home for the kids.
0: I know how that is from personal experience. I've got eight, six and four. So oh, you're a little okay. bit behind me, but, but not too far. It does get better, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and you have run at least one marathon, is that right?
2: I, I have run one, and uh, you know, I um, I don't I don't know if and when number two is going to happen because it was uh, it, it was a tough <laughs> one. It was a long way for a former miler. Let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> but it does give you some experience you could draw upon for your writing, right? So there's at least some ability to now relate to those crazy among us that do the marathon distance.
2: Definitely. It's that, yeah, I mean, I've, I've written a lot about it, so it, it would be dishonest of me not to at least try it.
0: Yep. So let's jump into your first pillar, which, if Steve and I are being honest, might be our favorite of the seven that you mentioned in that article. But you say running is good for you in, quote, moderation, which is defined as also in quotes, a lot more than you're doing. And as a as a training program that preaches the importance of mileage, we we got a good kick out of that headline there so in this article you kind of talk about in that section a lot about some of the anti-running science out there and you've done in-depth articles on that in the past those articles in science kind of emphasizing that if you run too much too hard then it could actually be bad for you so talk about what those risk factors those studies refer to in terms of running longer and harder and but why is it not so simple as just saying running for you is bad
2: yeah, I mean, I think it's first important to say that this idea that too much exercise is bad for you has a long, long history. And it, it, it's, you know, it's, the story changes over time. But certainly, uh, pe- you know, people have long been saying running will ruin your knees and things like that. Whereas the, the epidemiological evidence is pretty clear that uh, people who run regularly are far less likely, or at least certainly no more likely and possibly a little less likely to develop things like osteoarthritis in their knees. Um, so there's just kind of a there, there's there's always been a kind of current of oh you're uh, you're going to ruin your body if you but you're going to wear wear yourself out and the the one that's that that sort of hit the headlines three or four years ago and has has gotten a lot of attention is the idea uh, uh, that you could be doing damage to your heart in the long term and and this one like it's tricky because uh, I, I don't want to be totally dismissive of this research and it does it it does seem increasingly likely that uh, you know well there's no doubt whatsoever that long-term endurance training changes your heart and, and your, your, your circulatory system. I think on balance, most of those changes are positive. You get a stronger heart that's able to, you know, beat, to circulate blood more effectively, but there may also be other changes in terms of building up plaques in your arteries or, or increasing the risk of atrial fibrillations. And, and we all know that that sometimes people die in marathons, right? Like it, like it happens, it's kind of a dog bites man or man bites dog kind of thing, because a lot more people, you're, you're a lot more, you're probably more likely to die sitting on the sofa from a heart attack than, than, than a run. But any sort of vigorous exercise does put strain on your heart. So, you know, with, without taking a half an hour to, to go into all the ins and outs, I guess my, my summary is that nothing is risk, risk-free and running is not risk-free either, but but when people talk about the evidence that that you can you know be scarring your heart you look at some of the data and these are these are people who've run you know lifetime totals of hundreds of ultra marathons and ironmans and things like that and they end up maybe with some evidence if you look closely enough that their heart has changed in ways that might be problematic we still don't know if that actually ends up having a negative health outcome but this has turned into this huge kind of idea that oh running too much is bad for you and and the, re- the the real message that i wanted to get across is if you're training for a marathon or for a couple marathons a year you're not in the category of people where uh, where any of this research applies in as as far as i can tell so um, you know I, I can't make any definitive pronouncements as to, as to whether you know running any sort of running may carry some health risks along with the known health benefits, but I can definitely say that for most people, like I said in in the in that article, um, you know, moderation is probably more than what you're doing. You, you know, very very few of us need to worry. Like we, society would be far better off if there were more people who needed to worry about too much running rather than too little.
0: We agree wholeheartedly with that, and we also point out that in addition to the health benefits to running more there's also a lot of physiological benefits in terms of fitness building if someone actually wants to get faster so what's the science of that you know i tell people all the time that by training you're changing your body from the inside out in ways you can't see but that are hugely impactful on your ability to run fast over time so what does running more mean for that side of the equation
2: yeah i mean i mean the bottom line is that we know that the more running you can accumulate the 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 fitter you're going to get and the faster you're going to race. And the things that are going on inside, uh, they, they basically every aspect of your physiology is changing. So it's not just that your heart is getting bigger so that it can pump more blood more rapidly to your muscles. You're, you're also growing new blood vessels that help distribute that blood into your muscles. And within your muscles, you're growing more mitochondria, which is able to provide aerobic energy so that you can run without sort of going into that high intensity phase where you'll have to, to slow down and stop and and there's been a lot of debates over the years as you know what limits vo2 max or what limits maximal oxygen uptake and you can find studies supporting every chain along the pathway is okay oh, can are your are your breathing muscles strong enough to breathe in the air or can you get the air the oxygen from your lungs into your bloodstream or can your heart pump it to your muscles can your muscles get the 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 oxygen out of the blood and the reason it's so hard to figure out is that all these factors matter and all of these factors are, are what you're influencing every time you, you you run now obviously there's you know it, it's a combination of how much you run, how hard you run, how much, where you build in your recovery, like, and and that for those kinds of things, I think experience, like the the experience of generations of runners gives us a better guide than, than, than scientific studies on how to put together the training, but the overall picture is accumulate as much volume as your body can tolerate, and, and that's, that's how you're going to be, as you said, refashioning your body from the, from the inside out,
1: so when it comes to the question of, you know, running generally or running easy runs, talk a little bit about sort of the difference between doing, say, like a ten-mile easy run in terms of those physiological attributes, and also, or, or maybe ten miles of of mixed pace work or quality pace work. What's happening physiologically in that context? Many of our listeners here, Chris and I, talk frequently about these physiological changes, but rarely – neither he nor I are, uh, are, are physiologists. Um, and though you're a physicist, you, are, you spend a lot more time thinking about this stuff probably than he or I do. So give our listeners who may not have an understanding of what the difference between running an easy 10 miles might be or as opposed to doing like 10 miles with quality work in there and what's happening with their body.
2: Yeah, I mean – so – in in a perfect theoretical world, what you'd like to be able to do is go out and sprint ten miles as hard as you can, right? Like you'd get the maximum physiological uh, stimulus from being able to go hard and long, but we can't do that, right? Like you know, there's there's always trade offs between accumulating time, like volume, and accumulating intensity, and the body, and those give, and so you have to kind of balance those out and get a mix of both. And there's a you know, the, the stimulus is similar, but your body responds in slightly different ways. And, you know, there's some interesting research that suggests that if you're accumulating a lot of volume, that's doing more for your cardiovascular system, for your ability to deliver blood from the, the lungs or deliver oxygen from the lungs to the muscles. Whereas more high intensity work is it may be uh, stimulating your, your muscles to adapt more. So your ability of your muscles to to, to generate power and to extract oxygen from the bloodstream. So you know you, you could say that uh, you know mileage is for the heart and intervals are for the muscles. but that's even that's kind of an oversimplification because you know you can build speed by doing mileage and you can build endurance by doing intervals like there, there's so much crossover, and so really what it's about is trying to be able to put the piece of puzzle pieces together so that you're getting a mix of all those different things. Because if you're just doing one kind of training, you're not getting all the benefits you could get from stressing your body in these different ways, like by, by, by doing intensity and by doing volume.
0: One of the things that frustrates me about some of the studies you reference <laughs> is that it seems to exclusively focus on the quantity of running versus sort of the balance of... Stress versus rest and and intensity in the context of someone's running, you know. Steve mentioned two 10 mile efforts, but if you did six 10 mile efforts easy straight back to back, and then or six hard days in a row, you know, 10 miles. That's very different in terms of how it's impacting your body and how it might be causing or affecting these health related elements to your heart or whatever. So, what is the science on? that sort of stress versus rest and quality versus quantity. And is there any that points to the nuances of, you know, how hard you're doing it versus just purely on total volume?
2: Yeah. You know, from a health perspective, uh, the the simple answer is no, there's almost no data. Like even the, the data that exists, it's basically like you know, 40 years ago, someone filled out a questionnaire saying, how often do you exercise and what, what's your favorite exercise? And then they're using that to kind of extrapolate how much people run, which is really, really imprecise. So we don't have, like, there's just no data out there that tries to correlate that. I think those of us who've been running for a long time, can we intuitively know the difference between you know, if I, let's say I've been off for a long time and I just decide to get up off, you know, I've taken months off and then I get, if I'm coming back from an injury or something and I get up off the couch and decide I'm going to run 50 miles next week and I'm going to do it all of it at tempo pace. I mean, that's, that's a horrific way, way of going about it compared to doing a nice balanced training program and, and feeling each week, you know, whether, whether it takes me six months to go from you know 20 miles to 80 miles a week but feeling each week that i'm progressing within the limits of what's comfortable for my body like i as a as a sort of well-trained runner for the most part i never feel like i you know I, there's there's definitely lots of cumulative fatigue but i never feel like i'm kind of tearing myself apart and i think that's you know these things are really hard to quantify and there's no research from the health perspective from a performance perspective. I would say, in terms of how the pieces are put together, some of the most interesting stuff has been done by by a guy named Steven Saylor, uh, who's based in Norway. He's from Texas, actually, but he's based in Norway. And and th- there seems to be evidence across a lot of endurance sports about this idea of polarized training. You know, Matt Fitzgerald wrote a book called 80-20 Running, and this idea that you know, you need some hard stuff, but most of, most of your running should be easy and a little bit of it should be hard. And again, if you if you talk to people who are training in an, in an organized context like, like your group, that's probably what the training looks like, right? Like you're putting in a bunch of mileage and you're putting in some hard workouts. If you talk to someone who's just going out there on their own, who's decided they need to get fit, often what you end up hearing is that, yeah, I'm running five days a week now. And, and what do you do when you run? Well, I go out and run as hard as I can. And that's what they do five, you know, five days a week. And that, that's a very different kind of stress. So it's always pushing hard. So I think that the perf- the performance side of training has a lot to, to teach the these health studies.
1: Yeah, it's uh. and speaking about um, sort of breaking down the body and beating the body up, I loved your second point where you're, as Chris stated in our notes this week, that he sent to us, there's no magic in a bottle. Um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, many people are utilizing supplements and things like this to get themselves recovered from these hard efforts. And, you know, you, you, you put that out there pretty boldly given the fact that there's a whole lot of money in the supplement industry, but yet your final point at the end of that, of that paragraph was eat whole foods and um, talk a little bit about that, about sort of the, the, the the, the trickery that, that the supplement world is trying to throw at us and, and what, what answers there might actually be in terms of how we recover from, from these hard efforts.
2: Yeah, you know the first thing I should say is that so I started writing the sweat science column about ten years ago now, and and I was kind of I, I was really interested in chasing this kind of thing. It's like what are the what are the technologies that can help us run faster? What are the products? Where where are the places we can get marginal gains? And so I would chase down all these studies that were coming out that's saying that tart cherry juice would do this or or you know whatever the the, the latest thing would be, and it was cool for a little while, but eventually eventually I started to notice that, you know, none of these little studies ever got replicated and then, you know, they never seemed to pan out. And so there, it was just this endless sort of cycle about what, what supplement would be would we be talking about this year? Um, and so I got more skeptical and, 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 and I've, you know, I've gotten increasingly skeptical over the last five or six years that it's not that nothing works. There are some things that work like caffeine definitely works. Uh, And and, you know, and you know, we can get to later. There's other things like beet juice and and creatine that have have decent evidence, but the vast majority of things don't work, and or at least don't have any repeatable effect that that can be found in any study that's more than like six people, six random undergraduates with a, you know, where they got a lucky result. So, you know, it's kind of contrary to what I thought or hoped when I started out the blog. It's just I've come to believe that most of the supplements we take aren't helpful and, and in fact can have a kind of counterproductive effect in the sense that we start looking, we're, you know, we're looking for answers or for help in, in, in a supplement. And this isn't just about running. It's about health too. Like I definitely for many years took a multivitamin, but eventually, you know, there've been a bunch of very, very, very big studies with hundreds of thousands of people that suggest multivitamins basically don't do anything, you know, uh, or maybe even occasionally have a negative effect. Um, but but the more the the, the more insidious thing that the thing that i see with a lot of a lot of athletes and and just people trying to be healthy more generally is you know it's it's kind of subconsciously a, a looking for a shortcut so you you know we all know we should eat lots of fruit and vegetables and things like that and eat a balanced diet but it's hard right like the, like life is busy so it's like okay well i'm taking my multivitamin every day and i think in a way that kind of gives us a, a an out to say, okay, well, uh, I, I'm really busy. I don't have time to pack that apple and carrot in my lunch. So I'm, but it's at least it's okay. I took my multivitamin. And so I think it kind of backfires because, because the time, time and again, the evidence shows that you get better outcomes with whole foods. It takes a little more effort, but if you make that effort, I think you're going to, you're going to get it rather than taking this, you know, whatever the pill may be that turns out to, to really not have any evidence behind it
0: one of my personal favorite excuses alex is i just ran 20 miles so i can go eat a bunch of ice cream and crappy food <laughs> afterwards you know that's that seems to be the common one that i hear
2: <laughs> well i am I'm, I'm not i'm, I'm not going to deny that I've, I've i've used that excuse with myself i mean and, and and there's definitely a place for for indulgence and 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 uh, you know and, and 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 having a good time and enjoying some good foods but yeah and 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 tying back to what we were talking about before about the health outcomes of running and when when you see runners who do have you know hardened arteries and things like that it's a reminder that you know none of us are granted immunity and so sure it's 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 fine to have a treat now and then but if if you're basically fueling you know sort of quentin cassidy style if the furnace is hot enough anything will burn even big Macs. well that you know in the short term, maybe, but in the long term, you're not going to be doing yourself any favors if you're not eating a, a pretty good, healthy diet.
0: Not to mention the potential performance impacts. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk for a second on the positive about the ones that you have seen do work. We have we have had a coach in the past who got a lot of folks in our groups turned on to beet juice or some of the the beet powders that you mix in to make you know drinks and stuff. What's the science on beet juice and how do people use it if they want to try it to their advantage?
2: Yeah, so the, the deal with beet, beet juice is beets contain a very high level of nitrates. Um, and you have bacteria in your saliva that once you eat beets, the, the, the nitrates in the beet get incorporated into your saliva. And then this bacteria converts nitrate into nitrite, which is a similar a related chemical. And then once it's in your system, it gets converted again from nitrite to nitric oxide, which has really powerful effects on your it uh, it it uh, it helps them to expand and contract based on how much blood is needed in, in any given part of your body. So that's that seems to be the main effect. No one's exactly sure how or why, but what they've found is that taking beet juice typically a couple of hours before a run. Sometimes people load up for maybe 12 hours, you know, take two or three doses of beet juice in, you know, in the day before, in the morning of a a run. And and you'll you'll see a couple of percent improvement in running economy, which is how much oxygen it takes to sustain a given pace. Um, And, you know, there really aren't many, as I said, there's not many supplements that can do things like that reliably. So it's become a sort of... uh, very, very widespread among you know top marathoners and and, and, and people who are trying to set PBs at, at long distances to take beet juice maybe the night before and then maybe two or three hours before a race. Now, beet juice definitely has caveats. <laughs> if you've taken a lot of beets or drunk some beet juice, you, you may notice uh, some odd colors when you go to the bathroom and you may also find that it upsets your stomach. So um, these days, what I tend to hear from athletes is that a lot of people are using beet shots, which is a concentrated form of beet juice that seems to be a little bit easier on the stomach. Um, and I th- it's a British company called Beat It that makes those, I think they're now available, Beat It Sport, it's now available in the US too. Um, so I mean, as far as as far as far reputable science goes, I, I think these th- this sort of beet juice approach has, has a lot. Um, th- it's a little less clear whether it works for really elite athletes because almost nothing works for really elite athletes. They're so optimized that it's very hard to, to move the needle on anything. But there's pretty much no doubt that it that it tends to work for people who are just well trained rather than elite. Um, now I will I will add the caveat that uh, I've never tried beet juice, so I can't <laughs> I can't say anything about what how it tastes because for me, even though I'm interested in this stuff, but like it's. The idea of, of just taking a pill or, or a juice to try and run 1% faster, that's not just not where I'm at with my running right now, I'm not I'm not too worried about that, but I do eat a lot more beets than I used to, and I also eat a lot more leafy green vegetables, stuff like arugula and, and spinach and also rhubarb, because they're also high in nitrates. Because what it turns out is that, this, what this research has helped to kind of uncover is that nitrates also have a beneficial effect on blood pressure and on some other health markers. So it's good for running. It may also be very, very good for, for your health. And so I've definitely incorporated it into my diet overall and ho- hopefully that'll help, <laughs> help fuel my running too, but I haven't actually been drinking juice.
0: Interesting. Especially related to the greens. I wasn't as familiar with that research. What about caffeine? What's the right way to use caffeine? I know, you know, folks like Nick Simmons are trying to make a business out of run gum, but caffeine through gum uh, version of this but how, how can people use that you know is it something where you have to if you're a common caffeine drinker they have to lay off for a bit and then get back onto it right before your race or how, do you, how should you use yeah, it to a- optimize it
2: that's a good question and, and if you talk to a lot of elite runners you'll you'll or even you know any sort of runners you'll hear that oh yeah a well, week before their big race they stop drinking coffee so that they can kind of Amp up their body to be ready for the caffeine boost before the race. Um, there's still controversy on this, but there've been a, a, a couple of studies, including a pretty good one just in the last few months. I think it was, just seeming to suggest that actually it doesn't matter that whether you drink coffee every day or whether you never drink coffee, you get roughly the similar, roughly roughly the same magnitude of, of performance boost from from caffeine. So I guess I would say, g- given given that. Withdrawing from caffeine if you're used to it generally feels like crap. Uh, I I would I would say just keep keep you know keep in your normal routine and, and then on the morning of the race maybe uh, an hour before or so take some caffeine. If you're used to drinking coffee, if that's part of your pre-race routine, that's great. If not, and you just want to take a caffeine pill, that's probably a more reliable way of knowing how much caffeine you're getting. You can also if it's a marathon or some, or or a, or a longer race, you can get some of your caffeine in um, in the form of a gel through during the race and that seems to actually give a little boost to get a caffeine gel you know two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through a race Uh, that that can definitely help in terms of dosage uh, the range that people use is definitely is sometimes usually between about three and six grams per kilogram of body weight Um, and, uh, and and the research seems to suggest that the low end of that is fine there's not really a lot more to be gained from going to six so a relatively low low dose and i guess the, which is i think equivalent ends up being equivalent to you know one pretty strong coffee for for most people and the, the last thing to say is there's a lot of individual variation this is just an emerging area of research but people metabolize coffee at different rates so most people get a pretty good benefit some people get little benefit and there's a few people who seem to actually maybe even get adverse effects cuz they metabolize it uh, in a way that they it's out of their system. All, all they have is the negative effects, and they don't actually get keep the positive effects uh, during the race. So so it's something that you want to kind of try out in a workout before you try it in a race. And if it makes you it doesn't make you feel good, then you should be you should you know listen to that voice in your head that says ah, I don't know about this.
0: So the moral of the story is there's no magic in the bottle, but you might play with some beet juice, some caffeine to see what might work for you. But always experiment before you actually decide to go for your race. Now let's go to number three. Third pillar, you mentioned the best technology for tracking and guiding your runs is the device between your ears, which is almost anathema kind of a statement in today's world of Garmins and Fitbits and so forth. But I I wanted to start with a fundamental question. Are Garmins getting in the way of fitness building for those that are so obsessed with them?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I, so I, I would say, no, that's that's too much of a generalization. I don't think it's like a an epidemic or anything like that. Um, and I think they can be useful. And, uh, you know, we can talk more about, you know, how, how I think they might be useful. I I, I guess, I think over-reliance on, on Garmins and other sorts of GPSs can be a problem. And it's maybe not not even a problem that's unique to the technology. You know, so I'm like I, I realize I'm starting to sound like the sort of curmudgeon on the, you know, yelling at kids to get off, get off my lawn and stuff. But so I, you know, I, I started running before the, the era of, of GPS, but I had similar issues even with just a basic wristwatch. So I would get, if I was doing track workouts, I would get very reliant on my watch to check my splits to make sure I was running the right pace. And if I was running in a group and it was my turn to lead and I didn't want to screw up the, the interval, wasn't enough to check every 400 meters I you know so I get I'd start you know checking at 200 just to make sure I was on pace and then after a while I would start I, I would always check my splits at 100 and then at 200 and then at 300 just to make sure I wasn't gonna screw up the split at, when we went through the lap at 400 and that's that's stupid because it's it it means I'm not listening I'm, I'm not developing my own sense of am I running the right pace is this the effort that I want I'm looking at my watch every like 15 seconds and when I was training with with Matt Centrow at seniors group, he would he used to get furious if he caught me catching my watch, checking my watch, especially every you know hundred meters, and so I'd be doing intervals and he, I'd go through the first lap and he'd start yelling at me to take off my watch and throw it in the infield as I was training, and I, I, I you know I've never felt so naked as trying to run a really hard interval with it with in a group where I'm responsible for setting the right pace and I don't have a watch anymore, but he, I think he was. I think that lesson that he was trying to teach me was really important. And I think that that same lesson is in, in a sort of on steroids form is now the same thing we face with garments. like, there's nothing inherently wrong with the tool, but if you lose the ability to, to ask yourself that question of, am I running at a pace that I can sustain? Because the Garmin's not gonna tell you that. Only, only your own internal sense of effort is gonna tell you that. So you, use the Garmin by all means, but don't, don't let it take over for the ability to monitor your pace.
1: Yeah, my my term for the Garmin or the GPS watch is geek-o-meter because it pretty much is what it does to people. It turns them into complete and utter geeks. And they and you know, I just recently had an athlete who is a coach for us as well. Who I basically told her that she needed to give me her watch every day when she showed up because she was. Not listening to the internal signals, but my question for you now is: Is you don't really go into this in the article, but I think we've we've preached this idea of listening to your body. But can you give us some practical ways that a runner might um, use the GPS data, the the geek data, but also run by feel and how that might look in a in a in a, in a an individual workout or maybe in a cycle for a, for a person doing a workout or doing a in in training? So it's one thing for us to talk about this theoretically, throw your watch off, but. Is there a way that you might describe that might effectively help people synthesize these two things and, and put them together in their training?
2: Yeah, so, okay, first of all, I'll say, as far as the, the geek meter it's like, hey, I, I love data. And it's it's almost, it's like an addiction. So it's that's what's almost sort of dangerous about it. You, you, it's, you're sort of like staring at the spreadsheet and over and over. It's just like, that, you know, and again, in the, in the olden days, I had a training log and i used to keep all sorts of data like i used to take my heart rate when i first as soon as i woke up i would take my heart rate while i was lying down then i would get up and take my heart rate 15 seconds later and plot the difference between those values to assess my recovery it's like i loved having all the data and now it's so easy to collect the data that i could i could easily if i was if i was using one of those like a a garment i could spend my entire day just looking at the data so I I get it, and it's it's cool. And but in terms of controlling it, I guess my practical advice is: if you're using one of those, if you if you're going to use whether it's a a, you know a Garmin or a FootPod or or any of these other sort of devices that are available to collect data, I think the very first thing you've got to do for a prolonged period of time is just use it to collect data. Use it to tell you what's happening, but not to tell you what to do. So turn it on at the beginning of your, of your run and then forget about it. Ta- tape tape over the display if you have to. Um, and then find out over the course of weeks and months, how fast do I go on my easy runs? How high is my heart rate? What's what's happening, you know, and if you want, what's happening with my cadence and my foot strike or whatever? How does that change the day after a hard workout? Uh, how do these things change when I do a tempo run? Like what uh, what's what's my speed but also you know what's my heart rate how does that change if I'm in the middle of a high training week or a low training week or coming back from injury so learn these patterns about yourself without letting the watch dictate what you do and then after you've got that baseline data then you can say you can look at your data and say huh my heart rate for, for this pace is unusually high compared to what it usually is in this context for me um or or in your whatever other data you want to be collecting your heart rate variability and so on because you can get these you can get the general trends of like you you know you can read in daniel's books or whatever i should be running at this pace on this based on my my uh you know race best times and stuff like that but all of that has enough uncertainty built in that i'd be very skeptical about saying but telling yourself i need to run my easy paces my easy days faster because this book told me I, i did but if you know what's comfortable for you and what has worked for you in the past, then you can use that as a, as a, as a starting point to say, well, I'd like to run my easy runs a little bit faster for this next marathon buildup. And I'm gonna use the, 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 the GPS to, and the heart rate monitor to help me do that in a controlled way and to understand how, whether I'm building up more cumulative fatigue. So, to, so to, boil on, to boil down my long ramble, it's use it to collect data for quite a while before you use it to tell you what to
0: do. Yeah. And then I would say I have cycles where you got to go back and forth with that. You know, it's like calibrate, check in, use it, then then give yourself a time to recalibrate again at some point down the road where you kind of have to turn your brain off.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things I've noticed with some of the athletes that I work with as a coach, when you're trying to, that's what we do. Chris and I do this. It's what our podcast is mostly about is coaching. Um, one of the really hardest things that we have is limiting the number of variables that are going on so we can figure out what actually worked and what didn't work. And when you're looking at all these different data points and all these different pieces of information, but yet not checking in with your body and knowing where you're at, you, you get to the point where you get overwhelmed with the data and you're not able to exactly extrapolate, especially those folks who are self-coached, have a really hard time figuring out what benefit they got from what. And by listening to their body first, they're probably going to intuit some of this stuff right off the bat. What do you, what do you think about intuition in that process as well, Alex? Is there a place where intuition is, is is, you know, it's sort of a woo-woo concept, but it's it's something that as coaches many people use. How how would you how would you describe that from sort of a sort of sports science space?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 I think intuition's super important, especially and if we remember, if we're talking about someone who's competitive, whose who's ultimate goal is to get into a race. Uh, you're never going to race your best if you're not able to rely on your intuition of when you can when you can throw down and when you need to dial back. You need to be developing that intuition. And on a more, as you're saying, on, on a more uh-huh. like bigger picture level in terms of when you can push the your training, when you need to back off, what's working, what's not, I think intuition is really important. I, I also think that not, you know, not everyone gets it right. (laughs) Like the, especially in running, you know, there's certain personality types. Um, for, for some people, uh, the sort of what feels right is to push harder and harder every day. And, you know, that's definitely where it's really helpful if you have a coach who can be, who can, who can step in and, and save you from your own, uh, sort of instincts or insecurities. Um, because I think we all, you know, we all have. I think I'm sure we've all experienced the thing where you, you don't. You know, you're a little injured, and you want to back. You think you should back off, but you're think you're worried about losing fitness. And so, knowing what's instinct and what's insecurity is hard. So, having an external voice and 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 is is great. And whether the electronics can help play some of that external role, maybe it's getting to that point where, you know, if you see that objective data that says, well, my heart rate or my you know my relationship between heart rate and pace has been getting worse for two weeks now maybe i need to ignore that voice that's telling me to keep pushing harder so i think there's a role uh, there's a role for both but i think i definitely think the ultimate goal is to make sure that you're training your intuition so i like i don't think it's natural for us to know necessarily when to hold them and when to fold them or whatever but but with experience you can develop your intuition to become better and better
0: and you have to listen to your body to do that so that's a good segue talking injuries to number four pillar number four you you say here is in your article you probably got injured from doing too much too soon which i love because as a training program who we also have a retail store we've heard a lot of people walk in and blame their shoes for injury so it's good to see some data that would suggest maybe it's not the footwear that it's from doing too much too soon you mentioned this study from the University of Calgary that correlates 80% of running injuries to this idea of doing too much too soon. What does that mean? And are there rules of thumb from the science that says this is what too much too soon looks like? You know, we've heard the 10% mileage increase rule kind of thrown out there before, but is there actual science that would tell us what too much too soon looks like?
2: Yeah, I mean... The, the short answer is n- no again because of that question of individual variability S- some people you know some people can improve 20 or can increase their mileage by 20% in a given week uh, and they'll be fine some people will be 5% and they'll be injured so i uh, in in terms of the idea that it's always too much too soon that i i realize it's kind of a circular statement like um you know in hindsight of course it was too much if you if you got injured but if you didn't get injured then it wasn't too much so so um, so, so there's a point in which it's circular, but I, but like you're saying, I think the point is that we, we always tend to look externally for, uh, you know, it must've been this, it must've been this surface that did it. It must've been this shoe or, or, or this workout. Um, and, but the, the, the fundamental thing is whatever you were doing, whatever stress you were putting on your body. Uh, whether that was changing to a new shoe or you know doing a hill workout you'd never done before, it it was it, it was too much and and so and we can adapt to all sorts of different things and and if you, all you have to do is look at the history of shoe retail, not you know whether in the last five years or in the last 50 years, things change. People have run in all sorts of different things and people are able to run in all sorts of different things. That doesn't mean necessarily it's optimal, but for the most part, you know the injury like. The, the whole minimalist. Everyone got injured when they switched to minimalist. Well, they were trying to do it too fast. Everyone got injured when they weren't doing <laughs> running in minimal, minimalist shoes. Again, it's uh, you know, the, the most the people who are most likely to get injured are less experienced runners because they're starting from a place where their bodies aren't used to it. <laughs> so, how how do you know if you're doing too much too soon? I mean, if I had a simple answer, I, I would be selling it for millions of dollars, but. And it goes back to what you're saying a little bit about intuition. Like, how does anyone know the difference between, uh, you know, an ache, a niggle that's going to go away after a couple of days and the one that's going to turn out to be a stress fracture a week later? Well, you you, you know a lot better once you've had a stress fracture. So part of that is experience Um, and just trying to learn good pain from bad pain. Rules of thumb, the 10% rule, you know, it's one of those ones where you can poke holes in it for sure, but it's not a bad rule of thumb. And, you know, I, more recently, there have been some researchers talking about the acute to, to chronic ratio, where instead of just looking at what did you do last week, you look at what you've done over the last four weeks. You take your average over the past four weeks of training, and you compare it to your la- your, your current week of training. And if that current week of training is, you know, let's say 15 or 20% higher than what you've been averaging over four weeks... It doesn't mean you're going to get injured, but your odds go up. It just gives you some context. I better be careful because I'm uh, I'm doing something that is un- that my my body will not have been used to based on the last four weeks or the last two weeks or the last one week of training. And so it just maybe that just means that if you do feel an ache or a pain, you're you're quicker to back off. Uh, you, you know, you recognize that you're in, you're in a high risk zone or something like that. But it's you know, it's it, ultimately the, the the real message is you just got to be, you have to be patient. There, no, there, you can't you can't short circuit the, the training process and the adaptation process without incurring a higher risk of injury.
0: And again, listen to your body. Yeah, <laughs> M- maybe there's only one pillar. Listen to your body. I had an athlete that I coached this season. She was new to our groups, and she was preparing for New York coming up in a week. And early in the cycle, we met one-on-one, and she said, she said, you know, and our program has five or six days of running per week for marathoners. And she she told me, she said, Chris, there's no way I can do that. I've I've, I've only been doing three days a week, and my body won't let me do more. <clears throat> and so we had to have the conversation about the fact that incorporating easy days into her schedule would actually make her work make her train better because her body would be more prepared for the long runs she did for the workouts that she did on those two out of three days she was training already and so we you know we worked through a transition period to build her back up and then i remember a few it was probably a month and a half later after working through that initial transition with her she came to me and she said i feel better than ever <laughs> running five days a week because she'd incorporated a lot of that easy maintenance running that she hadn't previously been doing, and you you make a statement in your article that it may not it may not be that you're doing too much too soon, or it might be better put that you did too little in the previous weeks to to kind of manage the load that you're that you're taking on now. So you know, just kind of talk about that point, which is that sometimes. At, like we said in number one, more is better because it helps you balance the work you're doing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know this 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 woman you're, you're you're mentioning, the chances are that after she's adapted to that program, like you said, after a couple of months, she's less likely to get injured because she's sustaining a higher load, so that her her body is used to that running. It's not all hard running. There's a good mix. And when she does do a hard workout, it's not her first run since three days earlier when she did another hard run she's had a, she's having a chance to kind of stimulate that adaptation in, in in her in her legs and muscles and so on um you know it's, it's obviously a hard a hard sell to say that uh you need to run more to have less chance of getting injured but that is actually what the data tends to to suggest i mean there's a little bit of a selection effect probably the people who get injured a lot maybe don't don't stick with running as long but but I think there's also some truth to the idea that if you're able to accumulate uh, some mileage over time you' you're you're helping your body to adapt you're probably making some biomechanical changes you're learning to run more efficiently uh, the, the more you run the more you kind of shave off shave off the inefficiencies in your in your stride you, your running economy gets better over time as, as you run more and that probably translates into a, a lower injury risk and it also applies to things like coming back after an off season or, or after an injury, it may be that, you know, if you're used to running 40 miles a week and you do that, you know, 50 weeks a year and it just feels natural that you, if you, if you, if then you miss a couple of weeks or you're coming back, that you're tempted to just rush back to a level that feels totally natural and easy to you. But if you've had a few weeks off, your chronic to acute ratio is suggesting that your body is used to, you know, averaging 15 miles over the last four weeks then 40 miles a week may be too much even though it's actually pretty conservative for you or even 35 mi- miles a week. So it's, it's a question of understanding not just where you are right now, but where you've been in, in, in recent history. And, uh, and and also just, yeah, trying to sustain consistent training, I guess, is another kind of important keyword we could throw in there that, that uh, if the, the more consistent you are over time, the, not only the faster you're going to get, but also the, the, the more likely that you're going to be able to stay healthy.
0: And we like healthy runners. Cause healthy runners get fast <laughs> from consistency. So let's let's jump to pillar number five. You say with five, the magic workout shoe or superfood is whichever one you've been ignoring lately or have never tried. Your basic premise on this point is that you know variety is important too. You know it's important to be consistent with your training, but also know that you can get stale, and then working in some new regiments or food variety can help you in your training or with your general health. So what, you know, what does that look like? How does someone practically add variety? You know, it's, it's sort of funny, like thinking about systemizing variety, but is there, you know, is there a way to systemize variety in someone's training regimen?
2: Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. It, it does sound sort of uh, like a, like a contradiction. Um, you know, I mean, I guess the, a starting point is just, you know, at the end of every season or at the beginning of every Year or whatever to, to ask yourself you know what what could I do what could I add this year and and you know you, you don't want to be just sort of throwing everything into the pot at, at all times but ask yourself if there's a if there's one new workout one new uh, sort of style of workout or type of run or ancillary form of exercise or, or something that you can add in uh, I guess I've become more of a believer in that uh, as as much for the mental benefits of, of trying something new. Cause you know, like I've been running for what, 25 years now. I, I, I I've done, you know, 15 by a quarter uh, more times than I can imagine. And and so it's, it's kind of nice to force yourself out of autopilot. And I, I've, I've become actually a big fan of, um, variety, not just in the context of a training plan, but in a specific workout. So of Uh, you know, doing a workout. I'll tell you, one of my favorite workouts that I did with uh, when I was with Matt Centrowitz's group, it was a team that he had, a workout he had his American University team doing in cross-country season. And we started at the track and we did a 1200 where it was supposed to simulate the fast start of a cross-country workout. So we did 400 really fast and then settled into kind of race pace for the next 800 meters. As soon as we finished we, we switched out of spikes into road flats and did one-mile tempo over to a nearby grassy hill. And we did five times a hill, like a 45-second hill, and then up, up hard and then cruising down the hill, kind of a loop. And then we finished the hill, one-mile tempo back to the track, another 1,200, where we did 800 cruise and then 400 all out to finish. And it was like... <sighs> I was writing that in my log that night, and I was like, man, this is, this workout's really hard to write in my log. it's It's frustrating. you know, I, I want to be able to add up what my average pace was <laughs> and and all that stuff. But it was so mentally engaging. It was, you know, and it, and it kept there was no autopilot. every for every step of the way, I had to be thinking about what am I doing here? What's the purpose of this point of the workout? How hard should I be running? Will I be able to sustain it? And so I've become a fan of of workouts like that that mix different elements that aren't just x times y. Meters with Z or with Z uh, amount of rest. So, um, so there's there, those sorts of thing. Variety, I think, they're useful. It doesn't mean that you only do those sorts of workouts. I think there's also real benefit to having some staple workouts that you go back to over and over again, and you can they're, they're kind of reality checks where you can say, how fast can I run five times a thousand meters with two minutes rest? I know how fast I did it last year. I know how fast I did it last month. I know how fast I did it five years ago, and I know how that correlated to race times definitely huge advantage of that and i think i definitely am not kind of encouraging you to just go willy-nilly or or uh, just make things up as you go along there's there's variety there's benefit in the classics but i really think there's also benefit both physically and mentally to doing some things where where you're it feels fresh and you're you're being challenged with with each interval or, or, or with each part of the workout
0: we we love it we have some workouts like that. Steve, in fact, is notorious for <laughs> for giving, throwing us a, a lot at us in one workout. <laughs> Let's go to six quickly. So you say with number six, and then I'm going to turn it to Steve for the question that you you probably you can probably run better, meaning have better running form, and you start by, again, we have a theme here going, you start by running more. So just like we talked about in, no- in number one, running more is, is good for you. Not only because it helps with your aerobic fitness and perhaps has health benefits, but it also helps improve your running form. So, with that kind of intro, I'll turn it to Steve for a question.
1: Yeah, Alex. So, you know, we've I think that in our in our coaching business that we run, we could probably if we could have figured out a way to we probably could have figured out a way but if we if we could have monetized the situation of telling people that they could pay us for running form classes we could probably be millionaires right now because so many people when they come at it whether they're beginners or they're intermediates or they're advanced they're always pointing to the fact of saying what should i do for my biomechanics what should i do for my form and i always have said and i always have said just go run more. So when I read that from you, and they would always think that I was just like copping out, like like I didn't want to have to deal with it. Um, talk a little bit about what the what challenges there might be to someone who is trying to change their form, what what risks there might be, and why is it that running just running more is going to help them with their form? So it's, a, it's sort of a two-part question.
2: Yeah, so uh, one, one consistent finding from studies over the years is that if you take A runner you have them run on the treadmill and then you say "All right, I want you to change such and such a thing about your form whether it's I want you to hold your arms a little higher I want you to stride a little quicker I want you to bounce a little less whatever it is whatever you tell them their efficiency is going to get worse they're they're going to start burning more oxygen just to maintain the same pace so for a lot of years the, the the advice was then don't mess with your form because you kind of know, and it's it, it, you, your body knows automatically in ways that scientists are actually actively trying to figure out right now. They don't know how we do it, but we they do know that if you suddenly s- subtly mess with anything, uh, you know, even without people knowing it, uh, y- your body will quickly adapt. You'll automatically select an efficient way of running. Now, the the catch is, and what people have sort of latched onto in the last six or seven years is that that doesn't mean it's impossible to change over the long term. It just means it's impossible to change over the short term. So maybe maybe if you, you know, hold your arms in a different way, you'll be less efficient. But once you get your body gets used to that new form in six weeks or six months or whatever it is, it'll be more efficient. And the problem with that is that no one has actually shown these sorts of changes. So it, it, it becomes an article of faith. And you know, for me as a guy who's interested in the science and the evidence, I, I've sort of still up in the air. It's like, I, I agree. It's possible that people could get better form and get more efficient and perhaps, perhaps more, uh, injury resistant. I'm just still waiting for, for demonstrations of this. Um, you know, in terms of specific changes, uh, or, or, uh, you know, what might work and what, what, what wouldn't it, it's just really hard. And I mean, I guess the, the, one experience that kind of opened my mind a little bit was watching the New York Marathon, maybe you know seven or eight years ago, and watching not just the leaders, because you know I was a big fan of the elite side of the sport, but sometimes you know you, you get a misleading opinion from watching the leaders. So I watched the whole race go by, the fifty thousand people or whatever it was, and as you get to the second half of the race, you start to realize, wow, you know, some of those people <laughs> have pretty funny running form, like, and it's hard not to think, okay. I could tell this guy, hey, listen, you know, like your arms aren't glued to your side. You, you're allowed to use your arms, and that's got to be helpful, right? So I can see where the instinct that, that running form uh, guidance can be helpful, but but it's just one of those things where where it's 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 a lot harder than it seems. So I, I think some obvious advice can can be useful, but uh, um, the, the the sort of more. You must run with your, you know, uh, 180 steps per minute or your foot has to land in a certain way at a certain place. I think our capability of making those changes effectively is, is less than our body's ability to kind of, uh, for the most part, the, 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 our body can kind of make those decisions better than, than we're able to.
0: Find the efficient way on its own
2: yeah and that's to sort of get back to the second part of your question it's like yeah if you're running in a way that's super efficient or super inefficient um you may be able to get away with that if you're just running for the bus but if you're going out and running five five days a week um for the most part for whatever reason what what the research suggests is that you will get more efficient and that's presumably because the more you run the more you're like, you, you sort of just accidentally as you run you're moving in different ways and you sort of stumble into ways that are a little easier and your body takes note note of that and 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 starts to have you keep doing that you know keep keep your arms relaxed or keep your stride a little longer a little shorter whatever the case may be so yeah you you eventually sort of uh converge on a a more efficient technique for the most part
0: it's interesting alex as we've kind of talked through these first six it's like Everybody who's making money in this industry off of some thing, some special some schtick, sauce, yeah. some shtick, some <laughs> method or supplement or whatever, is pretty much bullshit. It's just, it comes down to the simple things that we all know, but we'd rather have a shortcut.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, I, I will say in a sense, this post was kind of my penance because like, Again, my, the whole premise of this of my blog and Runner's World was looking at sort of at the, the technology and the science of sports. And so there's a tendency, you know, not just for me, for, for a lot of journalists to to chase after what sounds interesting or new, you know, a new way of uh, whether it's a new way of fixing your running form or a new supplement or whatever. Those those things get a lot of of of, of airtime. And so this this last post was my attempt to say, "Hey, listen, I've been really following this area closely for like a decade now. Here's my take. And my take is like, you can ignore most of those, most of this kind of noise and just stick with these <laughs> fundamentals. That some, you know, someone could have written my article 50 years ago. No, you know, with, without any question. And, and, uh, you know.
1: Yeah. But when we get to your final point, your seventh point, it goes into what Chris and I have been pushing a lot. And what we've, we've been seeing, I, I just recently um, listened to a podcast, um, a guy, a guy, who puts on a podcast called Finding Mastery? Uh, one of our listeners uh, sent a, sent a recommendation to listen to that, and it was of Luke Walton. And um, in their discussion, he basically stated that he thought that the 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 next new frontier for NBA professional NBA basketball players was going to be training the mind. And I thought. Well, you seem to be about 10 or 15 years behind the eight ball there, buddy. I think most people have thought that, but it has yet to have any practical applications for that. And your, your seventh point was that you can, you're capable of much more than you think. And, and and you, you spent a lot of time in your sports science blog talking about the brain and, and how the brain plays into the limits of human endurance, but talk to us a little bit about what the difference is between the brain and the mind and what mental training can do for runners. Um especially in, in light of the fact that I think in February you have a new book coming out that probably is going to go into some of this. So maybe you can give us a little teaser about that as well.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, my, my, I guess, you know, not to psychoanalyze myself or anything, but I still have a lot of questions about my own running career, you know, my own collegiate and post-collegiate running days about, you know, when I ran well, what was it that allowed me to, Surpass, surpass my expectations because there were times when I ran times that I just thought I uh, had no no way I could have would would have believed I could do that and there were lots you know more frequently there were times when I was like what just happened why did I run so slow and why did it feel so hard like why why didn't I perform in a way that I'm sure my training was was suggesting and definitely there's some physical factors but my my takeaway you know after all those years of training is that. There were there were mental factors and 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 going beyond just the sort of like standard sports psychology of of uh, you know motivation and 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 internal monologue and imagery and things like that. So the book that's coming out in February is kind of the culmination of that. It's called Endure: Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And I kind of trace my journey and the sort of journey of science of trying to figure out what defines physical limits and. I want to be careful. It's not, it's not like it's all in your head. It's not like the conclusion is, Oh, and if you believe you can achieve, um, it's, it's, it's not that simple, but the brain plays a much more intricate role in determining limits than I think most people realized until the last decade when this research has really taken off. And so, you know, the book explores that. And at this point, it's like, I wish the book had, had, this great conclusion where it's like, and therefore, if you do take these three steps, you will unlock all of your hidden potential. And, you know, and if you buy now, I'll send you a running form magic. Uh, update. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 it doesn't have that. But it's an exploration of, of of I think that the kinds of things that anyone who's ever raced hard and, and wrestled with their own limits thinks about, which is like, what, why couldn't I go 1% faster? Or what was the difference between the day, the good day and the bad day? And how did those things interact and and the kind of conclusion that i end up with which is surprising to me because i i'm a very skeptical guy is that actually self-belief plays a a huge role that that it's not that if you believe you can achieve but if you have doubts that those will play into your ability to maximize your physical you you know maximize your physical uh performance so I, i you know so i definitely believe in for you know as you said at the top like you have to be patient. You have to, uh, you can't just get there in a day, but you're not just building physical fitness. You're also building belief in your, in your abilities. You're, you're slowly building up your self-confidence and you're, you're, you're proving to yourself that you can do what it is you want to do. And that, and that takes, that takes a lot of time. And, And it also, I think, takes sometimes some people are very naturally gifted at, at the mental side of performance. But for most of us, I think, uh, Contrary to what I would have thought twenty years ago, when I was sort of ignoring sports psychology sessions as a university athlete, I think uh, most of us could, could stand to to work on things like self talk and, and the kinds of th- the kinds of monologue that's going on in your head when you're racing. If you, if you can control that a little bit, that, that that can actually be pretty helpful.
0: What did you learn about yourself writing this book?
2: I could have been a contender. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it really made me think back to my, my career and, and to some of the decisions that I'd made and some of the times that I'd, uh, uh, you know, not performed as well as, as I'd expected. And I think, as I said, like, the reason I'm in the job I'm in now is that I'm a, a natural skeptic. I, I always sort of, my, my you know, my, my response to any incredible new study is approve it or show me the data. And i think that's a really useful trait for a science journalist but i think it's maybe not as useful for uh, sometimes for an athlete and i think i wish i could have uh, turned off the 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 doubts sometimes and just said you know what my coach has designed this program for me my coach knows what he's doing i'm going to put my head down and and do it and not not worry too much about the details because as much as I love thinking about it, running is a very kind of intellectual sport. It invites reflection and and debate and, and thought. But sometimes you've just got to l- let that stuff go and, and just focus on the task.
0: I love it. That's a, that's a huge takeaway, both for those that read the book as well as for yourself, I'm sure. So a couple final questions, you know, as we've mentioned at the top, you were at Runner's World doing sports science. You're now at Outside Magazine doing sports science. Covering some other topics besides running as well there. But we can't help but ask you about your, your uh, obsession perhaps. We have one uh, with Elliot Kipchoge and his pursuit of the world record in the marathon. You predicted like I did on this podcast that he would break the world record in Berlin. He did not. Some say it was because of the conditions. Some now say that it's inevitable that he'll do it. Steve, for the record, predicted that Bekele would win that race and that he would break the world record. So, <laughs> wow. thanks for throwing me under the bus there. Yeah. We'll, we've got a little kind of bet going here on who will get there first, and uh, he's hopeful that Bekele's is going to give it another shot and perhaps they'll do it another head-to-head shot. But what, what's your prediction there? Will Kipchoge get there, and or will someone beat him to it?
2: Yeah, it's well. Th- my first rule of marathon betting is that you should always bet on failure. I, I kind of, I, <laughs> I, I left that rule behind in Berlin. I was so totally overwhelmed by how amazing Kipchoge looked at in breaking two that I, 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 I despite myself, I, I really thought he was going to, I thought he was going to break two. I thought he had a chance of breaking two or two. Um, but in general, like the marathon almost always wins, right? If anyone is going to do it, I, my bet is still on Kipchoge um although man that the, the clock is ticking like for, the rumors are that he's significantly older than his stated age that he's probably late 30s um so uh i, I you know i wouldn't spe- you know stake my my fortune on it if i had a fortune but uh yeah if, if i had to go with one of someone i'd say kipchoge and man i i i love Bakili. i i love him uh but man, he's starting to—he's getting pretty hard to bet on. I, I, um, I hate—I just hate to say it, Steve, but he, I, I think he's a, a long shot at this point.
1: I—I I know he is, but I—I I still choose to go with my heart. I think it's maybe all those years of watching him, just totally dominate in the early aughts when he completely decimated everyone and everybody and every player that that came down the pipe. So. And I would love to see him cap it off. You know, we just did a we just did a podcast recently about the greatest of all time, the goat. And I and I have Bichayle there, and I would love for him to get the Olympic gold medal so that we could just be done with the entire conversation and we can prove to the rest of the world that he did it. But that doesn't mean I'm a Kipchoge hater. I just think I think Kipchoge is the best in the marathon. But I'd like to see. I just like to see it.
2: Well I, well, I applaud your loyalty and I applaud your listening to your instincts. Your instincts say Bakayi's going to do it, so maybe that's the case <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funny that you said the marathon always wins Alex because that's a famous quote of Steve as well he's, <laughs> he's constantly telling athletes that as a as a way to get them to respect the distance <laughs> so well Alex said
1: almost always I say always <laughs> I, w- I will say always wins <laughs>
2: So yeah, as is, we, is the glass ninety five percent full or is it five percent empty? You, 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 you exactly, choose exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. So as we wrap it here, Alex, tell people how they can follow you and how they can get your book coming in February.
2: Yeah, the, the simplest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm my handle is Sweat Science, uh, just Sweat Science, all one word. Um, I, I, you can also find me on Outside Magazine, OutsideOnline dot slash Sweat Science, and uh, from my Twitter handle, you'll find a link to to my book which is uh, coming out February 6th and uh, I hope uh, will be of of great interest to 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 runners
0: and I saw yesterday you can pre-order on Amazon so not only that but
2: it's it's on sale on Amazon it's $10 off right now so you know get them while they're hot
0: get out there and get it well we appreciate it Alex lots of fun insights here and You've you've made our day, kind of confirming some of the things that we preach here on the podcast and to our groups. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to uh, great to chat with like minded people.
0: So there you go, Alex Hutchinson. Thanks again to him for joining us. That was awesome. Woo! Lots of good stuff in there. Lots of meat. Lots of validation, which makes us feel good. Yeah, as, as I say, it makes me feel like you know. We've been
1: singing the same song. We're playing the same rock song. <laughs> we're getting after it, except then you realize that we're the cover band and he's the original artist. Yeah. But it, it, you know, he—it's great to have someone who's in really into the science of the sport, basically reiterating point after point after point points that we've been trying to make on this on this podcast. And I think that. Um, Hopefully for our listeners, they don't feel like we're hitting a broken record. But I think sometimes I wonder if if people if people wonder about our pedigree or wonder if how we are, we're coming off talking about this stuff. You know, neither one of us is um, is, is is trained in the actual science of exercise physiology. We're both really knowledgeable. We know a lot about it, but Alex has a lot more that he's bringing to the table with this. So to know that we've got so much commonality and so much similarity makes me feel like. It just feels validating. And honestly, in some sense, we've always been kind of talking about the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple, stupid. And this really reiterates that. In fact, if if anything, it it seems to me it's almost that that's what these seven pillars are, as he alluded to in it. Like, really,
0: is there really only one or two pillars? You know, (laughs) run more. And listen to your body. And listen to your body. Like, (laughs) yeah. It's that simple from Dr. Alex Hutchinson, the great... Physicist and now running sports scientist and journalist. But we're looking forward to his book. I think it was interesting to hear a little bit of the maybe catharsis that came for him in writing and kind of thinking about his own mind body connection and the doubts that maybe held him back when he was running at high levels. So super excited to have that coming and hopefully we'll get him back on. Again, that we're definitely gonna have to get him back yes. on uh, He gave us an open door there, so he we did. should we should push it we will push it. it down in
1: February when we get the cha- when people get a chance to read it and ask some questions. So. And
0: everybody should go out and pre order his book. It's called Endure Mind Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance by Alex Hutchinson. I'm gonna go out and do that right now. It comes some out in February. I. And we will be talking about it once it's out, so check that out, out as well. All right, this has been episode 48 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out on our website, roguerunning.com, or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.